Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. I am your host, Matt Taini, and this is podcast number 20. So today we're going to cover three topics, uh, actually two and a, and a half, really. I'm going to do a little bit more on car rack stuff uh, that I forgot to tell, some funny stuff, interesting stuff. Um, and then I'm going to do a little bit on bike assembly, um, how it's changed through the years, uh, through my years being a bicycle mechanic um, from the pro build back in the day up to uh, builds nowadays um, in bike shops. And then we'll finish off the day with a little bit more about Alfredo Binda and the Giro d'Italia. So let's start off with uh, the car rack stuff. I'm just going to finish up. So um, some stuff that I, I didn't talk about. Um, one of the reasons I don't enjoy car racks is the fact that sometimes they fail, uh, usually due to improper installation uh, and not manufacturer defects. Um, recently, a coworker installed a roof crossbar setup on a naked roof. Um, naked roof is a term used for a vehicle without any factory side rails, uh, fixed points, mounts, or a complete factory uh, roof rack mount system uh, and crossbars like you would see on a modern Subaru. Um, so these, uh, these mounts use clips that grab the inside of the door jam um, and are held on by uh, tightening the sides attached to the crossbar. So anyway, he did the install and a few days later, the customer said that the rack came loose and fell off uh, on the freeway. Um, kind of a scary thought if you think about it, if you're driving uh, behind that person. Um, they came in and told me the story uh, before I installed a completely new system on their vehicle. A completely new system, of course, at no charge. Um, because we had really had no way of knowing uh, what caused it, uh, caused the rack to fall off. So. So during my kind of investigation, it came out uh, that they did not uh, purchase lock cores um, from us when we did the install and they bought the stuff from us, um, which should come with all racks um, and they should just charge more because it's kind of ridiculous. So they also, these, these folks also lived in a neighborhood where car racks uh, in the recent past had been stolen off of vehicles. So I came to the conclusion that uh, the guy, uh, my coworker who installed the rack actually did it properly um, and that someone um, probably tried to remove the rack uh, but couldn't because the, the, the doors were closed and locked and probably got uh, scared off in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the deed. So, um, so ever wonder why um, truck racks come with a, uh, a strap to strap your bike to it. Um, so trunk racks are probably my least favorite kind of rack. They're kind of a pain, they're kind of ugly. They're made to come on and off, which isn't a great thing uh, in, in my opinion. It's, uh, so they give you this strap with it to strap your bike to the rack after you've put your bike on the rack and use the other straps that they give you to strap it onto the rack, usually on the top tube. So this extra little, little strap, um, is so that when your bike falls off uh, due to the due to a rack failure or an improper install, you'll have a thrash bike to present to the rack company versus just saying my bike fell off and I don't know where it is. So kind of interesting. Um, I learned that at one of the rack trainings I did years ago. So uh, one last little thing on car racks. So which is kind of weird because after I recorded this episode last week, uh, 
when I went to work after I was off for a couple of days, we had three different bicycles in for, for repair that had fallen off of bike racks. Um, one of them apparently fell out of the back of a pickup truck. Um, I think it was on one of those, those, uh, tailgate racks. Um, and it fell off. I don't know the whole story. Um, and then the other one was, uh, was a hitch rack that actually slid out of the hitch uh, and it had two electric bikes on it that one of them fared pretty well. The other one had quite a bit of damage on the, the handlebars and the light and the fender and such. But, um, the, in that case, the, the owner of the, of the two electric bikes said that he believed when they were camping that somebody was trying to remove the rack and, uh, that was why the rack fell off. So I never talked to the guy directly, but, um, kind of scary being out there on the road and seeing all these racks and stuff on cars and, um, rooftop boxes that, uh, you just hope that someone put them on the right way and that they are, uh, haven't been tampered with by somebody trying to steal them. So, so that's all I've got to say about car racks and I probably won't talk about them ever again. Well, I can't promise, but anyway, um, we're going to move on to bicycle assembly, um, from back in the day, which for me back in the day would be the mid to late 1980s, um, to present day. So, so back when I first started working in a bike shop, the way that it worked was, uh, bicycles came in in boxes, uh, with a bag of parts, um, and you had to basically assemble the bike. Some companies were better than others. Um, they were not, they were not as pre-built as they are today. Um, when you get a bike from a factory overseas, they're, um, usually pretty much pre-built and they usually do a decent job. Sometimes things are put on a little too tight, uh, with stuff, with stuff like air guns or whatever it is they're using to, uh, to put the bike together in that assembly line. But back in the day, um, we would we would sell regular bikes you know your garden variety 300 to six seven hundred dollar bike back back in the 80s and we also sold um so sold what we would call a pro build which would be a uh, higher end like back in the day a road bike um which would be sold as a frame set it would be sold as a frame and fork and then you would have to buy a grupo which would be all the components either Back then, it was either Shimano or uh, Campagnolo. So the Pro Build was always kind of fun because, as a customer or as a as a bike shop tech, you got to take this bike uh, from from frame and fork and basically assemble the entire thing with all the the Grupo and the other components like uh, like the tires and and handlebar and stem and all the stuff that the that the customer would pick out. And that was always that was always kind of a, a really kind of cool thing that um, not all bike shops would do, but usually uh, the higher end ones that sold kind of the, the frame sets would um, would do this. And it was, I, I'll never forget one of the first uh, bikes that I bought from the shop that I worked at was a, was an Eddie Merckx. And it was the, it was the paint job of the Motorola team, which was the team that came after 7-Eleven. So it was, it was blue and red and white, and I didn't have all the money to buy a whole bike at once, so I bought the frame set. So I bought the the frame and the fork, steel bike, lugged steel, um, Columbus SL tubing, um, and I think at the time it cost me, I want to say seven, eight hundred dollars 
for the frame and fork. And I couldn't buy the Grupo yet because they were still too expensive. I didn't have all the money. So I took the frame and fork home and put a hook in my ceiling in my room and hung it from there and stared at it for probably about eight months before I, was, I had enough money to buy the Grupo, which I, I saved up my money and got a Campagnolo chorus group that was, I believe, about $800 at the time. And then once I bought that, then I was able to save a little bit more money for all the other stuff that you kind of don't think about as a pro build. So the other stuff would be tires, tubes, um, rim tape, handlebars, uh, stem, um, seat, um, seat post, if the Grupo didn't come with the seat post, but I believe mine did, and, um, and your stem, if I didn't say that, and your handlebar wrap. So, uh, so I was able to buy all that stuff, and then I got to build it up myself. It was the first pro build that I ever did. Um, and it was, it was pretty fun. It was kind of a neat way that shops used to sell kind of high-end bikes. And the, the road bike, road bikes that we carried were, uh, from a company called Gita. I don't know if they're still in business. G-I-T-A, I believe was the name. And they sold, uh, DeRosa, um, Eddie Merckx, uh, and Pinarello, uh, just to name three kind of rad bikes, um, that are still around today. Um, don't quite look like they did back then. They were all steel back then, Columbus SL, Columbus SLX tubing. And uh, those were some pretty amazing bikes. And the guys that I worked with owned uh, some Eddie Merckx. One of them, I think, owned like three Eddie Merckx road bikes. And the other one had a couple of DeRosas that were just beautiful. And he actually um, had a DeRosa that was painted uh, the Moltini colors from Eddie Merckx's uh, Moltini team. Um, back in the day, it was like orange and stuff. And that bike was just amazing. And they had, they had six speeds in the back only with a campy freewheel. Uh, there were no cassettes back then. And it was a down tube friction shifter, um, beautiful bikes. I'm pretty sure he still has them all now, um, to this day, uh, modern, uh, they were not like modern bikes. They didn't have aero, aero, uh, brake hoods. Everything was internally routed in the handlebars and, and, um, kind of no STI or ergo levers, all down tube shifters, um, kind of skinny little box rims, um, with, uh, usually 20 or 23, uh, C tires, um, which is kind of opposite of what we use today. We go 25, 28 on road bikes. Um, so that was kind of the pro build, uh, back in the day. So I think nowadays you can still do a pro build from from some higher end shops, but a lot of the bikes, um, higher end bikes, even are going to come with uh, uh, groups, and a, it's going to be a complete bike that's already kind of pre-assembled um, with different. You know, one one might have a Shimano Ultegra, maybe Shimano 105 Durace, and something with Campagnola. Get your choice um, of three or four different uh, builds on it, but they come kind of pre-built. So back, back in the day, in the 80s, when I was working at a bike shop, the bike shop that I worked at, we carried um, some brands that aren't around anymore. We carried Mayata. Um, what else did we carry? Uh, Bridgestone. And, um, and one of them that's still around is Raleigh. I remember when we carried Raleigh, Raleigh mountain bikes. And when we first started getting them in, we got a, a Raleigh mountain bike in that was in a box and it had this huge long bag of parts. And if you know anything about cantilever brakes back in the day, the brakes, center pull brakes before there were ever uh, V brakes for mountain bikes, 
the cantilever brakes came in a separate bag, completely disassembled. Uh, that's the brake that you need the two tools to adjust the pad. You need a 10 millimeter and a five millimeter uh, hex head to adjust and tighten the pads. Um, kind of difficult to do when you're first learning, but so those brakes came completely disassembled. So the fork wasn't on the bike, the headset often wasn't pressed in. Um, you might have a bottom bracket in there and the cranks might be on there, but but everything else had to be installed and kind of built. And and the bike assembly back then would take a couple hours for a bike that probably didn't even sell for a whole lot. It might have only sold for three, four hundred dollars back then, but you had to pay somebody a couple hours to put it together. Um, so and then in my time at that shop, things changed when it came to bike pre-assembly. I remember we started to carry specialized and and the first specialized bikes that we got in were all pre-assembled and they're kind of kind of what you see in today's pre-assembly bikes where everything's on the bike except for the front wheel the handlebar might, might not be on the stem and the pedals are probably not on but everything else is on there um, and when we got those first bikes we were amazed we we're like oh my gosh this is like so much better so much easier so much faster you could put that bike together in a half an hour if you didn't run into any problems and that's kind of where we are today with bicycle uh, pre-assembly from factories um, a lot easier than it used to be um, sometimes it can be a nightmare because um, you can still run into issues from the assembly line like trying to remove a crank from a bike that's been put on with an impact wrench um, you need kind of a gigantic cheater bar to get the crank bolt out even so kind of stuff like that but but it definitely has come a long way and it's um it's it's quite a bit easier but consider how many bikes um used to be built the old way versus now how many labor hours have been say saved by bike shops and and shop owners um just because uh paying somebody two hours to assemble a 400 hundred dollar bike versus paying somebody for a half an hour to do it um is a is a big deal especially when you don't when the margin on bicycles is not as big as many bike shops would like it to be and then, and then one last note on the on the on bike assembly and and pro builds um so back back then um when somebody would do a a, a pro build that we also have to build the wheels which would mean we'd calculate the spoke length and actually lace them up and build the wheels to the the uh, hub that came with the grupo and then you'd pick out your rims, what kind of rims you wanted to run. So, so uh, part of the pro build was a wheel build, which is kind of a dying kind of art in a way. Um, it's still out there. Hopefully every shop still has at least one person that knows how to build a wheel. Um, I know at my shop we have at least three people that can do it. So it, it is um, one of those things that once you learn how to do it, um, it's really uh, quite enjoyable and and it kind of uh, completes the pro build. It's not. It's nice to be able to present the pro build to a customer with a bike that was uh, a wheel set that was hand built versus something that was uh, maybe a machine or factory kind of laced up and then finished off by somebody. Um, of course, that being said, wheels have changed so much. Um, we could do a whole show on how wheels have changed um, from your old uh, wooden rims back in the day to. Uh, to now our new uh, carbon fiber uh, rims and tubeless technology and pre-built wheels. And um, you can spend so much money on wheels, but even back when we were doing pro builds, uh, I had a fellow mechanic that used to say, 
that the wheels were the one of the most the most important part of the pro build and he said uh you build a pair of wheels and then you you find a frame to hang them in and ride them so on that note uh that's all about bike assembly and uh back in the day and such and we're going to move on and do um do a little bit uh, more about the Giro d'Italia, my favorite uh, race of all time. And we're going to talk about a little bit more about Alfredo Binda. So I'm going to kind of continue uh, on with the book, The Beautiful Race by um, Colin O'Brien. And we have, a, I think it's chapter three here about uh, Alfredo Binda. Um, so moving on from the book here. From the beginning, it was clear that Binda... Binda was bad for business. Appearing in the famous green jersey of the Legnano team, the little-known Binda would make an immediate and lasting impression on the Italian public in the 1925 Giro. The 13th edition, some 3,520 kilometers spread out over 12 stages, was supposed to be a straight battle between Legnano's Giovanni Brunero and Giordengo, riding for the Wolset alongside Gatano Belloni. Between them, the trio had won five of the last six Giro. One of them would probably have taken the 1924 edition, too, had it not been for the fact that none, of them, that none of them had taken part. The sport's biggest names were beginning to get a sense of their own worth by that time, and so demanded that their teams pay them to take part. Imagine that. Regardless the results. The teams, in turn, called for the race organization to foot the bill and the standoff ensued that allowed Giuseppe Enrique, an American-born Italian citizen, to win the biggest race of his career against a weak peloton of journeymen and chancers, lured, in, lured onto their bicycles by the Gazetta's panicked promise of room and board for the duration of the race. Pietro Linari, a teammate of Brunero and Binda, took the honors on the 1925's first stage after 278 kilometers of racing from Milan to Turin. But all the major favorites finished right behind him. Stage two headed towards the coast in Liguria, finishing in Arzano, 30 kilometers west of Genoa along the Costa Azura. The win went to Giordango, but both Brunero and Binda, his young Italian, his young, uh, Gregario, an Italian term for a support rider within a team, finished on the same time, with the with the trumpeteer ahead of his leader ahead of his leader in the classification. The 315 kilometers to Pisa, on stage three, crossed Brunero more than four minutes, but they couldn't separate Giardengo and his young rival Binda, who both finished on the same time as the day's winner, Giardengo's teammate Piero Bastetti. The following stage was almost 14 hours long, but still they were neck and neck, 14 hours, imagine that. And after more than 1,200 kilometers and 45 hours of racing, the, the duo began stave, stage five to Naples, joint top of the general classification. As the race headed south, the plot thickened. Rumor had it that Gitano Belloni was a little upset with his friend Giardengo. The Camponesimo had worked hard to earn Bassetti the win with little regard to, little regard to Bologna's travails. He'd lost 16 minutes that day due to bad form and bad fortune. And at least part to blame was, as far as Bologna was concerned, lay with the colleagues from Wolset. 
For a writer of his stature, he'd already won the Giro in 1920, Milan San Remo twice, and two of the eventual three titles at the Giro di Lombardia. This was a slight that couldn't be ignored. And so, when the opportunity presented itself, Bologna took his revenge, working with Binda to attack Giardengo when he flatted on the way from Rome to Naples. Bologna's treachery was rewarded with the stage win, but it was his 22-year-old accomplice who profited most, finishing the day with a lead of five and a half minutes over Giardengo, whose hopes of a third Giro title had been dealt a deadly blow. The gap would not have seemed fatal at the time. Enrique had won by almost an hour the year before, but for the rest of the Giro, the crowd favorite, Giardengo just couldn't shake Binda from his wheel. He bounced back from his disaster in Naples with two stage wins later in ben Benvenuto, but the race leader rolled in just 28 seconds behind. Brunero won stage eight to Sol Solmona, but Giardengo and Binda were just behind him. The, the hitherto king of the Italian roads stalked mercilessly by his fresh-faced heir apparent. The next three stage victories went to the Compassimissimo, but Binda never failed to finish immediately after, refusing to cede so much as a second. And by the time the peloton rolled out of Verona on stage 12, bound for Milan, there must have been an air of deflated resignation to the Woolsit team. Even as Bologna took the final stage win, their superstar, nine times the Italian national champion, twice the Gio Giro d'Italia winner and the dominant forces force at the race's length and breadth of the peninsula for more than half a decade had been bested by a kid. Little did they know that kid was just getting started. The following year, a bad crash on the first stage put Binda out of contention for the general classification, but he labored on in the service of Brunero, who would become the first man to officially win the event three times. Carlos Galetti having succeeded twice under his own name in 1910 and 1911, and again the following year when the race was run as a team event. After initially wanting to retire, the defending champion ignored the fact that he was 40 minutes down on the leaders and set about proving himself to be the strongest rider in the field, winning six stages, guiding his teammate to the title, and eventually finishing second, 15 minutes adrift of Brunero but an impressive 40 minutes ahead of the third place, Arturo Bresciani. Constant, Constante Giardengo had, having led until stage six, retired the following, following day with an injury. Time was catching up with the, with the champion, and while he'd race on with some success for another nine years, the man who had once been the pride of a nation would never win another stage at the Giro d'Italia. Binda's victory the following year in a word, vicious. The race covered 15 stages and more than 3,758 kilometers. And while 258 riders started in Milan, only one of them mattered. The 24-year-old led the gen general classification from day one and triumphed in all but three stages. And while the organizers had decided to introduce a time bonus of a minute every for every stage victory, they didn't really matter because even without them, He'd have finished more than a quarter of an hour ahead of his fellow Legnano rider Brunero. It was a tyrannical display of superiority and the perfect, perfect illustration of why champions need challengers. 
He won sprints and won the mountains. Only once did he surrender time on the three stages that he didn't win. And when he gave up a minute and 50 seconds to Arturo Bresciani on the 250-kilometer route from Pescara to Pissarro on stage 11. The, the Bay and crowds in Rome had seen him cross the line more than eight minutes ahead of Brunero. And the following day in Naples, he entered the Tifosi right after winning the sprint by grabbing a trumpet and joining the band on the roadside just to prove how little the victory had affected him. He dropped, he'd drop off the season, top off the season by winning the UCI's inaugural world championships at the Nuremberg in Germany, beating the runner-up Giordango by seven minutes. You imagine that seven minutes in a world championship race. The 16th Giro d'Italia wasn't quite so despotic, but it wasn't far off. And perhaps the most interesting thing that one could say about it is that at 298, it holds the record for the largest number of starters. Dominicio Pismondet Tessi, who'd won bronze in Germany behind Binda and Giordano, took control of the race early and managed five stage wins but never regained control of the general classification after hemorrhaging more than 13 minutes to Binda on stage four. After 12 stages and 3,044 kilometers of racing, the trumpeteer finished 18 minutes and 13 seconds ahead of Giuseppe Pensera, two weeks later in Milan. Having mopped up five stage victories along the way, his younger brother Albino won the other. He played trombone. By 1929, the fans were fed up. The 17th edition featured a smaller field, just, just 166. Of the more talented riders, and had a relatively short average length of 209 kilometers for its 14 stages, but the cha changes mattered not a jot. There were no time bonuses, but Binda finished almost four minutes ahead of Dominique Piemetesti in the general classification and set a record for eight consecutive stage victories that have never been bettered. It would actually have been nine had the judges not disqualified the first four across the line on stage 13 after a messy sprint was deemed to be in violation of the rules. Taking to the podium in the Arena Civica neoclassical stadium at the center of Milan's, Milan's Parco Sempioni, Binda was booed for his brilliance. There was, no doubt, there was no doubt he was what the Italians call Führer class, beyond classification. But after Giro victory number four, the public was largely beyond caring. What happened the next is improbably shady, even in the grubby standards of professional cycling. In a desperate bid to liven things up, Armando Cunier and the rest of the race's organizers had an idea. They had to convince Binda to stay home. And on that note, I think we're going to end podcast number 20 and pick up there in two weeks and continue talking about Alfredo Binda and the Giro d'Italia. In the meantime, we'll see you, talk to you in a couple weeks. If you have any suggestions or comments or concerns, you can always email me at taini at the bicycle mechanics podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe out there.